Hi, I'm Lavinia. And I'm Kelly. Welcome to season two of There She Goes, where women writers share true stories of travel, their stories, their experiences told in their own voices. There's a specific kind of magic that happens when women go traveling, and the stories that spring from those experiences are diverse and limitless. Stories of harrowing escapades, quiet epiphanies, powerful connections, transformative moments, and wild possibilities. There She Goes is a storytelling podcast. It's also an invitation to escape, briefly, to some distant elsewhere with a kindred companion. We hope it offers the exact travel infusion you need right now, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's a vicarious journey to hold you over till you're ready to go exploring again, or inspiration for your next adventure. We love sharing these stories and storytellers with you. So pack your bags and settle in, because here we go. This week, we travel with Sandra Gale Lambert to the Florida Everglades, where she finds out if her complex solo kayaking plan will be worth the effort or even possible. Sandra Gale Lambert writes fiction and memoir that is often about the body and its relationship to the natural world. She is the author of the Lambda Literary Award-nominated memoir, A Certain Loneliness, and The River's Memory, a novel. Lambert is an NEA Creative Writing Fellow, and her writing has been wildly anthologized and published by the New York Times, The Sun Magazine, Orion, and The Paris Review. I'm Sandra Gale Lambert, reading my essay, I Am Here in This Morning Light. This essay is an excerpt from my memoir, A Certain Loneliness, published by the University of Nebraska Press. Car doors slam and boat trailers clank by. Couples call to each other. Don't forget the cooler. Scrambled or fried. Did you remember sunscreen? My arm reaches from under the sheet and lifts a corner of the makeshift curtain hung over its bungee cord rod. Beyond the rear window, past a field of tents, a mist-blurred sun rises over the Florida Bay. I drop the curtain. My palms push against the carpeted ceiling of the van, and my head knocks against the side window as I stretch the best I can on the platform bed. This is my fifth morning in the Everglades Flamingo Campground. With each dawn, sleep coming and going as light silvers and then gilds the water, I've pieced together a plan of how to be out by myself floating in that light. Today is New Year's Eve 2009. By tomorrow, 2010, I'll be ready. I slip off the bed into the sheetrock bucket chamber pot. Once dressed, I throw open the back doors This late in the morning, only a few mosquitoes follow the light inside. I brace on a window latch and dangle upside down to pull breakfast from the food box under the bed. After slurping protein powder, stirred into a boxed milk, and peeling a grapefruit, I lean over my foot to open the suitcase of writing supplies, always on every trip, propped at the corner of the mattress. With pad and pen on my lap, Grapefruit sections piled on a dishcloth by my side. I'm ready to decide. A solo pre-dawn kayaking trip. Is it worth the effort? 
Is it possible? It helps that my camping companions have already left for home. Friends are great, but they want to come with you. Sure, I could say no, but it's not worth the price to be paid in hurt feelings. If I had a lover, would I even have imagined this trip? Maybe this future possible lover will be scared to kayak in the dark. Or she might be one of those hardy kayakers who travel 12 miles out into the bay to camp on desolate sandy keys, and I would only limit her. I try to imagine a woman who would help me get to the marina and wave as I took off by myself. The first bite of grapefruit sprays over the yellow pad and wrinkles the paper. I rip it off and start new. Friends have hinted that I'm persnickety and set in my ways. Ex-girlfriends have noted this as well. But I do not want things the way I want them just because that's the way I want them. I have reasons. One joy of a solo kayak trip is that I don't have to explain anything. There is no negotiation about where or especially what time. There is no need for my lecture about the difference between nautical and civil twilights and how a pre-dawn launch does not mean you leave the campsite, load the gear, or make a last bathhouse trip at first light. And it helps that I've paddled this trail over the Florida Bay to snakebite before. The first time was years ago, not long after trading my braces and crutches for a manual wheelchair. I was stronger then. I could shove the boat up into the back of my van. I can't do that anymore, but now I have a power wheelchair. It can haul things. Still, all plans have more complexity and less physical leeway. Solo trips don't come together for me as often. I've missed the chance to be silent, notice what is around me, and let tangled, perseverating loops of thought unravel. I chew grapefruit and look over the now sun-sparked bay. Flocks of ibis dip and rise in slow waves as they approach from over the water. They fly into the campsite low enough that people duck. A satin sheen and black wingtips flickers past me. I click my pen and write KAYAK TRIP in capital letters at the top of the page. I circle it. Some things I've already figured out. The wheeled kayak carrier I have doesn't quite fit, but I'll make it work and drag the kayak to the marina's ramp with my wheelchair. And then the wheelchair needs to be left out of the way of backing up boat trailers, but close enough that I can crawl from it to the boat. Yesterday, surrounded by the swirl of families from Michigan and Japan and young tattooed couples from Europe and troops of both elder hostelers and Boy Scouts, I placed myself here and there around the marina until I found a spot. It blocks a bulletin board displaying faded notices about fish species, but pre-dawn means I'll be gone before anyone can object. Most of the grapefruit gets eaten while I think about the mile to the marina. I have to figure out whether the wheelchair has enough battery power for their job. I reconsider using the van to transport me, the boat, and all the gear, but at 5 a.m. there won't be any fellow campers wandering by to corral into loading the kayak. I could give up on the early morning launch, lose the light, and not be alone on the water. 
that scenario repels me, and I'm back to the battery power calculations. Battery power is elusive, mutable, and predictions of it are always flawed. I put that page aside and instead make a list of objects. My wallet, camera, good pen, eye touch, and pain meds need to be moved from the side, front, and back pouches on my wheelchair and left here at the campsite, locked in the van. An apple, the car keys, and sunscreen go in the dry bag. A procrastinating dither over where to list insect repellent pushes me back to the problem at hand. I spit out the grapefruit seed, dry my fingers on the dishcloth, and return to the battery power page. Okay, the power chair has to be left in the bathhouse overnight for charging, either tonight or after the kayak trip. The transfer into my old manual and subsequent push back to the van uses a chunk of my daily allotment of arm strength. Arm strength is also elusive and mutable. After drawing diagrams with directional arrows and route distances, it seems that if I mostly stick around the campsite today, the battery power will hold through tomorrow. This does mean I'll make the recharging trek after the trip when I'm most tired. So I start a calculation of physical energy with percentages listed for each activity. Bathhouse trip, 30%. Launching kayak, 20%. Actual kayaking, 60%. Getting back up in my wheelchair afterward, 30% of my remaining energy. And I stop when, as usual, the math says I should never even get out of bed. I rip and crumble that page. The last wedge of grapefruit leaks out the edges of my mouth. I can adjust the kayaking route. I'll hug the shoreline instead of paddling out to snake bite. I wet down a corner of dishcloth, wipe my hands and face, and list getting someone to help fit the kayak onto the carrier as a chore for today. Outside my van, couples are fussing around their campsites. Now seems like a good time. I sweep up the peel, seeds, and abandoned calculations and drop them into the trash bag hanging from the side of the hydraulics. I extend my stretch into the long reach past my feet for the control switches. The side doors open and the lift unfolds. On the lawn behind my van, I make a slow show. First, I attach the bow line of the kayak to my armrest and with a wide sweep of my wheelchair, pull it alongside the carrier. Next, I pause. The other campers, blurred behind screen tents and tinted RV windows, are staring. I've spent days turning down offers of assistance with, no thanks, I've got it, and receiving in return some variation of, well, you're an independent miss, aren't you, from the rebuffed helpers. Now that I need help... I'll have to make this show over the top. I lift the kayak as high as I can, but as I expected, it fails to clear the sides of the carrier. Both topple away from each other and flop onto the ground. As I reach, with a soft yet dramatic groan, to set the carrier back up on its wheels, there is the sound of zipper followed by soft footsteps on sandy grass. May I help? The voice is from the Midwest. The man's beard is gray with lingering streaks of blonde and still has the wispy look 
of a recent retiree trying out a new life. The offer is a combination of kindness and boredom, and I appreciate it. Soon the kayak is cinched onto the carrier. He's curious, but I don't tell him my plans. Sometimes word will get around, and an official of some sort will decide he's required to interfere. I experiment with tying a loop of bow line that will lift the nose of the kayak up, but not too far up when I hook it onto the back of my wheelchair. We, the kayak and I, make a successful trial tour of the campground. The helpful retiree is back inside his screen tent, new enough that folds still crease the nylon. I wave at him as I rattle by. He looks up from his folding chair from his novel and gives me a thumbs up. His wife leans out of their pop-up and waves. I go back to the van and rewrite the list in chronological order. Happy New Year to me, I scrawl the message over the bottom of the page. At 4.45 the next morning, I let myself get up. I've been awake every hour, certain that the alarm won't go off and listening to the weather radio and worrying about the timing of an approaching cold front. I cinch the headlight around my forehead. Light on, I'm reviewing the list. At this stage of a plan, in the moment of execution, it all seems impossible, even transgressive. In an excitement of anxiety and self-sabotage, I will forget sometimes everything or neglect something that one thing that is absolutely necessary. The list becomes my way forward. It reminds me to move the binocular sunscreen, car keys, Apple, and cell phone from wheelchair to kayak. It says to go to the bathhouse. The list does not say to remember the toiletry bag, so I don't. But unbrushed teeth will not stop me. The mosquitoes are circling, but I keep in motion. I'm back from the bathhouse at five. The full moon shows a clear sky. The wind is still calm. The trip is a go. The 25-year-old beat-up crutch left over from my crutch-walking days and the extra-large vinyl barbecue cover are next on the list. I pull them out of the back of the van. With the crutch braced along my armrest, I hold the slipping folds of the cover as high as I can. I'm almost to the kayak when I feel the pull. My front caster wheel has run over a trailing edge of the plastic. I try to back off, but the wheel flips and wraps a layer of barbecue cover into its axle. A side turn tightens the cover's cinch cord around the wheel. No longer caring about the noise, I throw the crutch into the kayak and brace my ribs on the armrest to lean as far down to the ground as I can. My fingertips reach into the wad of plastic and rope. From whatever angle I pull, there's no give. This has not psychologically or emotionally, but actually for real stopped me. Anxiety flushes into my still upside down head and pools under my skull. It makes me pant. I have become an immobilized source of carbon dioxide and the mosquitoes swarm. I beat at my ears and swat at my nose and eyes. There's a pocket knife in the wheelchair's side pocket. I sit up in the seat and reach for it, and the mosquitoes attach the length of thigh where my pants stretch tight. Finding repellent becomes the priority. 
I can't remember which list it ended up on. My arm twisted deep into the back pouch. My fingers scrabble through the leavings of a week of camping and locate the tube between a crumbled park map and a black mangrove leaf. I take off the spray cap and pour it into my hands and rub them down my arms, over my ears, and along the part of my hair where the scalp is exposed. Sure, it's poison, but you reach a certain age and the phrase long-term effects has less meaning. The mosquitoes back off. I finger into the pocket and feel past the earplugs and floss. Under the nail clippers is the knife. I flip out each of the choices and decide on the blade rather than the miniature scissors. It won't cut. I try and try, but it won't cut. I'm going to be stuck here with mosquitoes for hours until the campground wakes up. My trip is ruined. I knew this wouldn't work. I feel along the blade, which it seems is an emery board. I exchange it for the real knife. The plastic slices away, but the cord still won't unwrap from around the bearings. I stick the knife into the axle and hack. Strands pop loose, fray, and unwind until only threads are left. I finish the fine work with the scissors, and I'm free. I becalm myself by studying the list. Once I decide that the umbrella and poncho are to be left in the wheelchair's back pouch in case I've timed the incoming weather wrong, everything is loaded that needs to be and everything is left that needs to be. I'm ready. I back into position at the front of the kayak and lift the bow line loop onto the wheelchair's handle. It hooks on the first try. The kayak and I rattled past what I doubt are still sleeping campers. The mile to the marina seems longer than it does during the day. I worry about being late even as I know that there is no late except for what I decide. Still, I push on the joystick and increase my speed. When the kayak pops in and out of a gap in the asphalt, I hear a new rattle following along behind me. I stop and twist in my seat. The bow line isn't working itself off the handle and the paddle hasn't fallen into the road. I resume the trip at a lower speed, but something still sounds loose. I recalculate and make myself a deal. If I'm halfway before the kayak falls off its carrier, I'll drag it along the grassy verge. That will still leave me enough battery power to get back in the afternoon, I think. And now there isn't anything else to figure out. This trip might really happen. I turn off my headlight. The moon brightens the pavement with a gray luster and throws the shadow of my caravan along the grass. We continue at a stately pace. No cars pass. The road surface smooths as I arrive. I slow and make a wide, careful turn into the darkness under the mahogany trees that line the parking lot. The marina is lit in thick yellow light. I can hear bow lines clang against the dock and smell the salty coolness off the water. I stop at the top of the ramp and review. The important thing is not to get out of my wheelchair, crawl over the concrete to the boat, and then look back and see the paddle or binoculars or water or dry bag or life vest left beside the wheelchair. I position the kayak close to the water. I load and tie down what I hope is everything. I park the wheelchair 
perch at the edge of, of the seat, and think things through one more time. Then I slide down the footrest and drop to the concrete. As my weight is irretrievably pulled down, as my palms and one thigh hit the ground, I hold my breath. This is usually when I remember whatever it is I've forgotten. This morning, it seems, I haven't forgotten anything. And nothing snags or catches as the barbecue cover fits over my wheelchair. The carrier and my crutch tuck neatly underneath. There isn't a rope to cinch the cover with anymore, but I shove the side of the wheelchair with my shoulder until I can anchor an edge of plastic under a wheel. I've crawled a few feet over to the ramp and am about to make a controlled fall from the ledge into the kayak when a boat trailer backs down beside me. They'll be headed out into the gulf. I'll never see them. We can help, they ask. No thanks, I say. I've got it. But as I use the bulk of my torso to hump the kayak down the ramp, I gather enough of my bad Spanish to ask them what time it is. Seizen punto, they report. I'm early. Or would be if there was an early other than what I make. One more heave and the kayak slides the rest of the way down the ramp. The cupping of water around the keel moves under me from stern to bow until I'm floating. I'm floating. I lift my paddle and tilt one moonlit blade into the water. That possible future girlfriend is a mirage on the shore. She waves at me. But if she were real, I wouldn't have executed this complicated plan and wouldn't be carrying the confidence of success out with me into the dark waters. Out in the bay, the horizon has a suggestive strip of gray, nautical twilight. The moon is behind me, and when fish jump, the west side of the ripples flash. Cormorants make frantic takeoff shuffles over the surface, and a brown pelican dives smack into the water. Flocks of shorebirds, too dark and quick to see, snap and hum by my side. The horizon releases streams of red and pink over the surface. I paddle toward them. Beside me, the water glumps into a heave and drop that presses against the boat. I decide it was a sea turtle rather than a shark. As clouds reflect into the now pink water, I try to center myself in the rose glow between the sky above and the sky below. Kayaking into the rose glow seems to be an optical impossibility. No matter how hard I paddle, the reflections are always not where I am. The kayak slides through the passage between Joe Kemp Key and the mainland before sunrise. Farther out is the channel to Snakebite, a cove within a cove where roseate spoonbills roost, and below them, on the mudflats, reddish egrets dance around great white herons. My paddle treads water and holds my boat in place as I think that snake bite is not that much further, that the incoming front won't kick up the winds for hours yet, that I'm here and should just go for it. I also remember that I'm pushing to my edge already and that this isn't a marathon. And finally, I remember that I am here in this morning light on this bay where no direction is second best or less than. I paddled twice on my right to turn the boat north and close to the mangrove shore. Still, I keep watch to the east, 
When gold shows through the gap in the horizon's cloud bank, I turn my boat to it and stop paddling. This is the first sunrise of a new decade. I think I'm supposed to wish for something. Probably it should be love and not writing career success. So do I just straight out wish for a girlfriend? Do I really want one? Or is it better to give love, to be capable of love, to accept love? Maybe it shouldn't be just a girlfriend. Maybe it should be a wish for love in the world, a peace on earth sort of thing. I'm quoting out of cheesy affirmation books, so I stop thinking the best I can. The sun's lowest curve is still attached to the horizon. It pulls taut and pours orange light over the ocean too bright to look at straight on. Dawn has been wished to for all the years anyone has existed to wish. Love, I say. The sun will know what to do with that. I put the paddle back in the water and turn north again. My vision smears into wavering black circles with glowing coronas, images of the sun in negative. The spots fade to gray. Beside me, the shallowed greens of the high mangrove wall squawk and flutter. My pupils regain their size, and cormorants, great blues, and brown pelicans become visible in the twists of branches. Under the lowest prop roots, on a bird's foot-sized lift of mud, a night heron preens her wings. The tide is leaving, and somewhere along here the water will run out. But these full moon tides are big, so I get farther than I would have thought possible. At the place I think of as a secret cove, I hold my paddle above the surface and drift near the opening. Mosquitoes are its first defense, but my clothes are saturated with enough residual repellent to deter all but a few dozen. I don't go any further, but I don't leave. I haven't been here in years, and still the birds startle out of their hiding place in the same species order they always have. The roseate spoonbills are last. They fly over my head, rippling scarlet to salmon in the new light, pale cherry in their watery reflections. They disappear into a far white strip of beach, and I follow them. The mangroves receive to reveal marl gray beaches where I imagine crocodiles lay their eggs, and then my keel bumps into the raised edge of mud left by a tidal creek wandering out of the trees. This is as far as I go. I put my feet up on the sides of my kayak, lean into the seat, and scan the distance with binoculars. What has seemed to be a beach becomes a hundred white pelicans. The roseates are sprinkled among them. I put down the binoculars and stretch my arms high over my head. Breast lift, a spine loosens, ribs spread wide. As if there's been a signal, rafts of pelicans lift, extend their nine feet width of wings, and fly past me. Other flocks, ibis, sanderlings, cormorants, and roseates go by. They follow the change of tide. I should follow them. I put my paddle in the water, and it sinks into a stir of mud. My boat has been left behind. I rock my body against the kayak seat and take careful backward strokes. The paddle edge only skims the surface until the keel sucks loose and the rasp of muck underneath me lessens. When the water deepens and the current turns the boat, 
I rest the paddle on my knees and let the tide pull me home. At the point of land visible before I turn back west, I see another kayak. A woman is paddling. Is this my girlfriend? Already delivered? We pass, nod, and say good morning. She tells me there are dolphins around the corner. I can tell she's Canadian. That would mean a big commute. Well, she'd have to move down to Florida eventually. I'm not leaving my own home, which is pretty small for another person. She'd have to get her own place. We continue past each other. Around the point, I see the dolphins. The two of them stay close and touch each other each time they huff and rise. I watch until they leave for open water. The marina is awake, boats motor out of its entrance and up the channel. The sandbar in front of the visitor center is above water and crowded with birds. I paddle through the seagrass meadows toward them. On the far side of the sandbar, a ranger is leading the early morning bird walk from the lawn across the seawall. I hear him say reddish, egret, and see tourist binoculars raise and point at me. I rest into my backrest and pull out the apple. In front of me, the egret lurches through the crowd of white pelicans and black skimmers. It jerks a wing open and shut as it searches for food. I eat my breakfast as the tide lowers and more waiting birds arrive to poke into the almost exposed surfaces for clams and worms. I tuck the apple core into my shirt pocket. I'm ready to go back. The wheelchair is still there. This is always a relief. But the ramp is different. Low tide has made it a long, steep way to the top. This was not in my calculations. I paddle hard, lean back to lift the bow, and ram as far up the concrete as I can. No more than the tip of my bow sticks. I rest. My muscles are wobbly from the trip. Lots of people pass by. They can't tell I use a wheelchair, so they don't stare, except in envy, I imagine. I rest and think about how I can do this. There will be crawling, and it will be in front of people, so I'm less likely to feel comfortable or even be allowed to collapse flat out on the concrete partway up to rest. I'm gathering myself to get started when a Spanish softened voice asks if he can help. I don't even wonder how he knew I needed help. It's not one of the men from before dawn. Yes, I say. Can you pull the kayak up the ramp a little? Two heaves and I'm at the top of the ramp, past my wheelchair. I have to laugh and wave my arms and say, Suficiente, gracias, suficiente. I roll off the edge of the kayak and over to my wheelchair. Usually in front of people, I scoot on my butt. Somehow I imagine that it looks less weird. But rolling is easier on my arms, and really being stared at is being stared at, so today I roll, and I do that thing where I remove myself. The people around me blur, my hearing diminishes, and I look no one in the eye. It is as if I'm alone. Four full revolutions over the concrete that my hips will feel tomorrow, and I'm alongside my wheelchair. I fish the crutch out from under the cover and use it to flip the plastic up and over. And now for its main purpose, I put the life vest on the concrete, twist onto it, and raise into a shaky kneel. 
I slip my arm into the crutch and angle it out from the chair, making sure the tip is stuck into a crack before I put my other hand on the wheelchair seat. I take a breath and lift, except that I don't. Some weight comes off my knees, enough to make me topple to my butt, but that's it. While I'm leaning against the wheelchair, panting and working harder to ignore the milling crowd, I decide the crutch angle is too steep and that my body should start farther out from the seat. I might have the strength for only one more try. I reposition and concentrate. It's not graceful, but I do get to the edge of one butt cheek on the seat. That's enough. I pull and lift until I'm centered. With one finger, I push the power button. The controls light up, and it is only now, now that it's done, that I'm certain that this trip is possible. Once the carrier is perched alongside the kayak, I let myself notice the world again. I smile at the crowd around me. I try to yank the kayak onto the carrier and, of course, fail, but it works. May I offer help? I believe he has a German accent. Yes, thanks. The carrier needs to be positioned under where the seat is. Great. Now let's wrap the straps in front of the seat and I'll lift the bow while you tighten the heck out of it. No, tighter. I might be sounding bossy, but really why waste his or my time? We're done just as his group of people start offering suggestions. Perhaps to slide it higher? Shall I hand you this water? I say no to the kayak adjustment, no to the water, and thank him for their help. You are the expert, are you not? I'm not sure which of them says this or what their intonation means. So I give a generalized bland smile while I think, yes, I sure am. I lift the kayak into place behind me and turn in a wide sweep toward the campground. The road is now full of RVs, trucks, minivans, cyclists, and people walking with binoculars strapped to their chest by harnesses. The kayak and I get thumbs up, waves, smiles. People yell, Happy New Year at me. I wish I had a picture. I know I'm looking dang cute. This could get me that Canadian. Sure, my shirt gapes over an ancient stretched out bra, and my hair is spiky, but not in a stylish way. The zipper on my pants twists off over a hip, and I'm not sure I've been remembering about deodorant, but I know from experience that after kayaking, when I'm this tired, my face beams a sort of feverish, angelic glow. After unloading and reassembling my gear, I lie on my bed with the back door open to the Florida Bay. I've showered. My power wheelchair is in the bathhouse charging until morning. I'm on my bed until I leave to go tomorrow. I take anti-inflammatory drugs. I don't think about how hungry I am since I'm too tired to even reach into the food box. I listen to the weather radio. The front is moving down the state. Tomorrow is going to be close to freezing. Right now around me, the air is the warmest of the whole trip and the mosquitoes are encouraged. Before I have to cover up or close doors against them, the first signs of the coming storm arrive. I lean over to the lift controls and open the side doors. Wind rushes through my van, blowing the mosquitoes away, and I can feel change on my bare skin in the curls of sharp air that swirl through, through the humidity. People from far away are lighting grills for dinner. 
People from Florida gather their gear, close their windows, and take down awnings and screen tents. I leave the door open to the gusts until the last moment. It comes suddenly, the rain. Couples yell to each other about what to grab first. With a flip of the switch, I shut my doors. Rain-blurred images of campers pass by the windows. I am self-contained until morning. You've been listening to season two of There She Goes, a storytelling podcast created by two women travelers and recorded from their homes in Alabama and Louisiana. Our theme music is a selection from the song City of Refuge, created and performed by Abigail Washburn. Thanks to Jay Burgess for engineering. Thanks to our amazing writers for proving how essential women's narratives are and for bringing their voices to There She Goes. And thanks to you, our listeners, for coming along. Be sure to tell your friends about There She Goes and follow us on your favorite platforms. And most of all, come back for more illuminating stories from around the world. Oh,